Welcome back to BungaCast. You're about to hear the second part of the interview with Toby Green and Thomas Fatsy on their book, The COVID Consensus, in which we discuss the effects of lockdown on poor and middle-income countries, as well as asking what the alternative might have been. That's all followed by an extended after-party where we discuss the precautionary principle, the idea of living on thin air, and what the legacy of the COVID consensus was and is, and what to do about the next pandemic. I think there might be a paradox here, though you might disagree with some of the presuppositions of, of this paradox, but that um, I, I had thought already early on in the pandemic that the that those places which would most benefit from a lockdown to the extent that a lockdown would spare uh, very limited healthcare capacity, lack of hospital beds, lack of medical equipment and so on, are precisely those in which a lockdown would be most damaging, um, which is to say in, in, in poorer countries. Um, I, I don't know what you what you think of that. Um, perhaps I'll just, just say one more thing, and then I'll let Tom, I'll, I'll, then I'll just let I'll let Thomas come in after this. But you know, the other very important factor is that we did know right at the start that this was a, a condition which aff- affected older people more than younger people, and the UN published its own report in 2019 saying that their median age in Africa was 19.8. In a country like India, it's around 30. You know, I mean, this was clear. You know, and so again, it, it is clear medical uh, medical colonialism to assume, first of all, that the same policy should be enacted. And secondly, that what's a problem in countries with old populations is going to be the same kind of a problem in countries with young populations. So yeah, I mean, you're right that it could have benefited those populations, but only, I would say, if it had been such a severe problem proportionately, which there's no evidence that it ever was. Yeah. Hmm. But it's also arguable that it would have helped. I mean, I mean uh, yeah. you know, keeping... I mean, whether I mean the the notion that the best response to uh, to to a respiratory virus is to close people in you know inside their homes rather than allowing them to be outside, which would you know is arguably the safest place of all, is uh, it was already quite a wild assumption in its um, in itself. That said, uh, even putting that issue aside, it's quite clear that I mean the problem here right from the start was the kind of uh, uh, the 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 kind of monomaniacal obsession, you know, obsession for COVID as the only thing that mattered, you know, like the only cause of death uh, uh, anywhere uh, in, in, in the name of whose reduction, you know, anything is justified, basically. You know, I think this is the, this is the, the kind of mortal sin, I would say, of the, you know, of, of the COVID response. And, and, and this was completely irrational from the start. The idea that, and, and this, you know, this became one of the founding myths of lockdown. The idea that in the name of of of, of reducing uh, COVID deaths, anything is justified. Uh, and it's amazing how many people went along with that, you know. And so you would have people that would point to, oh, you know, but the you know, the number of COVID deaths has ticked up by five last week, you know, and that you know that shows that you know we have to we have to uh, implement even harsher measures, you know. Suddenly you had this single metric. Which became the only thing that that counted. Um, you know, suddenly all other pathologies didn't exist anymore. You know, the fact you know, I mean, the fact that you know people die also of other things aside from COVID. Suddenly, it just was, it was you know, it was just, exp- it was just um, um, expelled from from the conversation, from the public debate, and uh, and 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 so that kind of that approach was was always bound to have disastrous consequences. The idea, you know, just looking at one, just focusing on one metric at the expense of, uh, you know, all the other factors uh, that make life uh, worth living or not, and that actually contribute to people, uh, to people, you know, to the health and to and to the life uh, or death of people was was always absurd. And so, uh, you know, that was always bound to have disastrous consequences. You know, it's in it was always going to have a terrible fallout in, you know, in countries with, with very high degrees of informal, um, yeah. of, of, of informal economies. But as we now know, I mean, it didn't make much sense. I mean, it's also becoming increasingly clear that it didn't make that much sense, even in 
sort of uh, high income developed countries. And, uh, you know, we, we, we now see that in you know, the, the, the data is quite clear in that respect. Yeah. And what's interesting, actually, is, is to um, is to show that actually, you know, in terms of the outcomes on some levels, the, the impacts are so much more incomparably vast in poorer countries. But the nature of the impact is actually quite similar in that, you know, in poorer countries, OK, regular vaccine programs stopped. You know, I interviewed a person around about eight or nine months ago, a colleague in Mozambique, who said they still hadn't restarted vaccination programs, the normal vaccination programs. So all other, you know, all other medical conditions, you know, cast aside childhood malaria, TB, you name it, you know, because of COVID. An interesting example would be uh, rapid tests. The companies which make rapid tests diversified out of malaria tests, uh, COVID tests. So in fact, there was a huge shortage of malaria tests because of the insane, insane obsession with COVID testing in, in rich countries. So that's, but it actually, structurally, the same thing happened in rich countries. The diseases which actually kill most people, heart disease, cancer, dementia, diabetes, didn't matter anymore. So in fact, the structural outcome was actually quite similar. Yeah, if you were to be really reductionist, you would say, yeah, this is a policy cooked up by people who are wealthy, old, and health concerned. And naturally, by being wealthy, most likely um, very concerned about health, elderly, but otherwise probably healthy. Um, I don't think that explains it entirely, but but it certainly correlates very strongly um, in terms of whose interest this serves. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, as it's been mentioned, but we haven't delved into it directly, Briefly, what were the effects of lockdown in health terms on COVID? Um, and we can also discuss wider public health, but just uh, just to nail the COVID issue itself, because I think a lot of the discussion still presupposes that lockdowns do, did, and can work, even if we don't want to bear the costs uh, in wider terms on public health, as well as on um, mental health, on society, civil liberties, and so on. Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think... I think one should always be very wary of, uh, of 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 taking sort of the official COVID statistics at face value because we now know that I mean they were rife with uh, statistical problems. We know that you know the the way that COVID hospitalizations and COVID deaths were calculated and to a large degree and in most countries still are cal- calculated uh, didn't really make much sense. And so, okay, so know, I mean taking excess deaths in that case because I no, yeah. But, I, 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 Despite the fact that even though COVID statistics should really be taken with a you know a, a big you know, a, 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 a lot of salt because they, they don't really make much sense, but Italy again is a great is, is a great example of even if we even if we take those statistics at face value, Italy and so the country that inaugurated national lockdowns that had one of the longest and, and harshest long now lockdowns um, across the west, one of the countries that closed schools for the longest time, um, actually has one of the highest. Um, um, COVID death rates um, in ac- across uh, across high income co- income countries. Uh, so again, I think Italy is a perfect example of ju- of, the, of just how that that these policies really don't work. Even you know, even in terms of a very reductionist approach of you know just reducing COVID uh, hospitalizations and COVID deaths. And in fact, uh, there have been a number of studies that have looked at that have you know have looked at you know, have tried to establish a, a correlation between the harshness, the strictness of the measures, uh, the length of lockdowns and so on, and, uh, you know, COVID hospitalizations and deaths. And uh, most studies really don't find a correlation. Most studies show that these policies really haven't um, haven't worked. And so you have countries that implemented very, very harsh measures, such as Italy, that have very, very high death counts, and countries that had a much... Uh, um, um, uh, a much less strict approach, like uh, Sweden and other countries, that um, that in fact have fared much better. Uh, in in terms of what is ultimately the only statistic that counts, which is excess deaths, and uh, as you were saying, I think you know that that's the that's the measure we should use because that also takes into account the kind of you know the 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 the, the, the collateral damage of these policies because you can't you know it's, it's pointless to just look at whether that was useful in reducing COVID deaths or not. You have to look at overall did it reduce. Uh, uh, all cause deaths or not, and 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 when you look at that, the conclusions are even more damning. There's there's you know it's, there's there's very little evidence that these uh, policies help reduce all cause deaths uh, uh, in in most countries. And in fact, there's uh, for some countries there's evidence that they uh, actually contributed to a to a higher number of uh, of excess deaths just due to the wider economic and societal disruption that these policies entailed. 
Yeah, I mean, Latin America is a good example of that, actually. Uh, you know, country uh, countries like Argentina, which had very severe lockdowns, Peru, which had, you know, incredibly severe lockdown, actually have way higher rates of excess deaths than... Mm. Uh, and even Brazil or Nicaragua, which is a really good case in point, you know, and, and this brings in the political dimension, but, you know, everybody says, oh, well, it was the right wingers who were, you know, anti-lockdown, but actually not the case in Latin America. It's a more of a mixed picture. Uh, Nicaragua, the Sandinista regime, no lockdown and ver- and lower than average rates of excess deaths. And then, as I was mentioned before, uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico turned very against lockdowns by the end of 2020. And um, so, it, it, again, a, a leader from the left. So, it's quite it's quite a mixed political picture, but certainly in terms of excess deaths, there's, there's not there's not really any evidence that uh, the, the, the policies reduce those. And of course, that's one side of it. And the other side of it is, okay, if they had reduced it, they would have had to reduce it a hell of a lot to justify the measures. Because there's not only the question of mortality, but there's also the question of all the other enormous harms that we look at. Uh, you know, abuse, for example, incarcerating pe- victims of abuse with their abusers, whether children or women. Uh, there's the uh, educational impacts, massive impacts in terms of inequality, which is known to be a key indicator of ill health in the future. So, you know, there there would have to be astronomically strong evidence that these policies were effective to make them worth considering. And there's just no possible reading the evidence can give you that. Just very briefly, in terms of the idea that, you know, there wasn't an alternative to the lockdowns, it's also important to look at where, you know, where were the majority of deaths uh, registered? especially in high-income countries, and that was in care homes. And that's where, you know, the most, what we know, what, we, what, we, what, what we're known to be right from the start, the most at-risk people, elderly people with, you know, um, um, previous um, health, you know, health problems, they, you know, we, they were known from the start to be the most at-risk category. And so, uh, and, and, and so what would have been the, you know, the normal response up until 2020 would have been to focus all the measures on the protection of at-risk categories. You know, that's what these, that's what the, you know, the pre-2020 pandemic preparedness plans said, you know, first of all, focus your resources on protecting who is really at risk. Uh, and so that would have, you know, that would have, enta- you know, that, that would have, have entailed measures aimed at protecting first and foremost elderly people and first and foremost people in care homes, the most fragile, the most at-risk people. And instead, the, this, you know, the numbers show that in, 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 in across the West, I mean, between 40 and 50% of deaths, especially in the first wave, happened in care homes. And I think this really highlights the absurdity of the response. So while you were locking healthy people inside their homes, running after runners on beaches and checking people's shopping bags outside supermarkets, you were essentially abandoning to themselves, abandoning to their fate, those that required the most protection. And that would that would have been the frail uh, elderly people, which in fact were decimated in the first wave. But I think this also points to the fact that there were alternatives and those that and that, no, and this is what some some people, some scientists try to point out. Once the damn effects of these measures were becoming, you know, clearer and clearer, look, maybe we should focus on those that are really at risk. If you look at, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration and other, um, you know, other documents of that kind, which said, look, th- you know, there is a different approach, and that's a more focused approach on those that are really at risk. Uh, and I think that that approach was, you know, kind of censored as a, <laughs> as a. Uh, you know, uh, a, a callous, uh, ethical libertarian approach. There's also an ethical consideration here, you know, uh, which is, you know, the question of death itself, which is something that Western societies have, have kind of, until this last few years, where obviously it's been a kind of festival of that in some ways. Uh, we've we've had a, you know, a, a, a pushing it aside out of out of daily life. But the fact of the matter is that the, average, the life expectancy of somebody who goes into a care home is two years. That's the reality. Uh, this is the end of life for, for people, and so in that situation, what is it? What happened? Not only was this catastrophe of mortality, but just as big a catastrophe in many ways was the way in which they these people died alone. They weren't able to be seen by their relatives. Uh, they died on FaceTime, uh, and still in many countries, it's hard to go and visit. I mean, I was talking to a friend who's Italian, actually, whose mother's gone into a care home in uh, in Italy, run run by the local nuns in near to Peshkara. And, you know, there's a 15 minute visiting time once a week, which came in after the pandemic. I mean, you know, this is an ethical question. It's a question about the way in which our societies treat death. And, and I think, you know, we've failed comprehensively. Yeah, I mean, it does seem there that there's a, a very serious trade off to be had between trying to um, preserve 
life, which would mean restricting contact um, and preventing infections in the elderly and the desire to provide them with um, some sort of meaningful life and meaningful end of life, which involves a lot of human contact. Just to finish off, I did want to turn um, to a quite serious question is that, um, is the alternative to lockdowns and to the whole COVID consensus that you detail very well in the book, is the alternative neglect? I say this um, keenly aware of the Brazilian case, certainly at the level of the federal government, where uh, neglect and denial was generally the approach which involved not buying vaccines, not supplying hospitals with necessary equipment, denying um, that the disease was a risk at all. Um, And I mean, Thomas, you've written quite a lot about the withdrawal of the state in terms of provision and the withdrawal of the state's responsibility uh, for the direction of society. So I wonder, you know, what you see the alternative to the COVID consensus being if you are indeed concerned with public health. what that what that would look like one which isn't merely uh, denial and neglect right well i mean i i think um you know <clears throat> the, the normal response would have been the one that would have been conceived that would have been considered normal up until 2019 i mean we don't have to reinvent the wheel here Again, you know, you go back to those pre-2020 pandemic uh, plans and they, you know, they have forecasts even for much, uh, much more lethal pandemics than what COVID turned out to be. And even in the worst case scenarios, um, the, uh, you know, what they, what, what they, what they propose, what those plans propose is to limit, you know, societal disruption, allow those that are not at risk to continue uh, leading as much of a normal life as possible while focusing your resources on protecting uh, those at risk. And so in the case of COVID, I, you know, I return to what I was saying earlier, it, it, it never would have been about neglect. In fact, it would have been what, what we saw was neglect. It's what I was saying earlier. I mean, those most at risk were neglected, were abandoned, uh, were in fact, I would say, killed by the, uh, by the state response. I mean, there should be criminal investigations going on in every country into uh, the absurdly high death toll in care homes. I mean, that should be the matter of criminal investigations uh, because those people were utterly neglected. And so, uh, you know, um, so I, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would turn your argument around. I think what we saw was measures that imposed huge harm over those that were had were a little zero risk from from the virus and in fact largely neglected those that required uh, that required protection and so i would have you know of course uh, focused uh, you know the state resources on protecting those at risk especially in care homes i would of course have boosted right from the start you know hospital uh, hospital capacity and we know that that clearly played a role i mean years of defunding and prior and, and creeping privatization of health systems in in western countries and that only clearly played a role in uh in 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 in, in you know in in, in ramping up the, the 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 death toll um so you know, I, I would have you know, my approach would have been the one you know considered normal up until uh, uh, up until twenty twenty, which I, which which would have been which I would characterize as the opposite of uh, of neglect. Uh, you know, it would have been a a much more focused and targeted approach, which arguably would have avoided much of the uh, you know collateral you know, wider collateral damage, and would have. Arguably, also uh, saved more lives than the uh, than 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 the response than than the COVID response um, saw. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm afraid it's going to be like a stuck stuck record, Alex. You know, I mean, the, I, I would say the fact you asked the question shows the success so far of the COVID consensus in imposing a single narrative. I mean, yeah, it's not about being neglectful of healthcare. Nobody accused people who wrote three pandemic, you know, pandemic preparedness plans prior to 2020 of being not caring, neglecting healthcare. Nobody accused them of that. That was the scientific method. That was what was deemed to cause the least amount of harm to society as a whole. So I think it's about focusing on risk. And here we have to go back into things like, you know, why did government media suggest this was something that everybody was equally at risk from when that was patently not the case? And why, when, uh, by the autumn of 2020, no, you know, there were studies showing that the median age of death from COVID in the UK was higher than the average life expectancy. Why did that persist? 
you know, these and these come back to much broader questions we haven't got time to go into here, but which we try and touch on in the book. But fundamentally, it's not about neglecting at all. It's about understanding the balance of health across the society and how and how that can be best protected. And that involves everybody and and more than one ailment. And, and so that involves a much more integrated vision of healthcare than we've seen. Fantastic. All right. Uh, we will leave that there. But thank you so much, Toby uh, and Thomas. I would encourage uh, readers to go pick up a copy of the book as soon as they can. It has just come out. Is that right? The second edition? Yeah. Uh, just to say the second edition yeah. is is a completely different book to the first edition. If you read the first edition, you'll get a totally different book in the second edition. Thank, And that's down to Thomas. Excellent. Yes. All right. So buy books, uh, buy more books and buy their book. <laughs> All right. Thank you both very much. I think one thing which you which you hint out of the book, which is very good. I mean, it's this kind of element of living on of of believing that we can live on thin air. Um, you know, that the kind of role of the internet and believing that economic production sort of happens elsewhere and elsewhere, whether it's the working class, which is unseen in, in Western societies or um, by globalization, that production happens in the East, um, which makes it all the more shocking that it was that. And I, I this is what I really liked in the book that it was um, that it, that these were applied in poor countries where the process of production is very naked and apparent. It's not something that you can imagine happens elsewhere and that you can live on thin air. Um, and I think that's, that's really remarkable. So I, it was, I, I really enjoyed reading those sections also where, you know, kind of focus on, on that element. Um, yeah. Very good. Yeah. You got to remember, I mean, the pressure was absurd. I mean, we all remember, I mean, we saw the pressure on Sweden and yeah. Sweden is a rich, high income, very developed country, which everyone, before 2020 considered to be arguably one of the best places in the world where you, where you could live, uh, you know, very progressive country. And we, we saw the amount of pressure that the Swedish authorities were, uh, you know, were, were, were put under. Incredible. So you can imagine the same, and, and, and it's amazing they even managed to resist. And I think that, you know, that has to do with, you know, also with, with how Sweden works. And that's, you know, it's also an interesting, but, but I mean, they, I mean, but, they were almost buckling under under the pressure, and so you can imagine that same pre- pressure applied to, you know, uh, much poorer, weaker countries and, and sure. governments yeah. which might have also. And of course, in Africa, you know, we have, you know, many governments are not the, the most democratic governments you can imagine in the world, and so of course, you know, a lot of them are arguably, you know, more than happy to go along with, uh, with you know, with the militarization of society that these uh, these policies implied. And in fact, some of the wor- some of the greatest successes. You did. You, you saw in Africa, you know, where you know. Yeah. I mean, the COVID regime was used to, you know, literally militarize. You know, I mean, uh, outlaw demonstrations, outlaw street protests, and uh, you know, engage in incredibly, incredibly violent and lethal rep- repression in a number of cases. And we saw that to a certain degree even in some South American countries. Uh, so, I mean, you can clearly see how every, you know, for different reasons, there were. Very you know, different actors in society had their own reasons for going along with these policies. I think. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. You're um, in Brazil, are you, Alex? Is that right? I am. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't. I should have said that at the outset. Yeah. I mean, Thomas knows, but I <laughs> I'd forgotten to, to to introduce myself. Yeah, no, I, I'm. I mean, I was born in Brazil and I've lived here for the past seven years. Whereabouts um, are you? So I I did have a kind of um, in São Paulo. In São Paulo. Um, okay. Where yeah. uh, I mean. Yeah, yeah, and so the local government, you know, did um, impose no something that I guess would be—I don't know if we'd call it a lockdown—but you know, um, yeah. closed businesses and things, but never really prevented. You could you could go out of your house and do whatever you wanted. Yeah, um, I mean the Brazilian lo- cases, large gatherings, yeah. the police might break it up, but not. Yeah, the Brazilian case is fascinating. I mean, I I know quite I know a lot of people in Brazil and from Brazil, and and some of them, you know, even though they're of course my my, my friends all Bolsonaro, you know, hate Bolsonaro, but you know they 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 have supported me on this there's some of the few people to support me publicly on twitter in my field have been brazilian which i find quite interesting because i think you know the and they're generally oh, interesting from, they're generally from poorer communities and these my colleagues and i think you know you yeah. can't deny the impact it's had on those communities not only in brazil but across latin america i mean it's amazing how little how little how little countering of the school closures there was um you know from kind of across the board even like the bolsonaristas didn't I think raise it that much, but and and certainly kind of on the liberal or left end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. or even across the center. You know, there's just very little said about school <laughs> closure, which is so obviously 
damaging and so impossible to do in a country like Brazil. You what, like some kid who doesn't have a computer, like accessing the no. lessons. And they went on for phone, such a long. And they know, went on for such a like long time. Favela, it's like ridiculous. Yeah. They went on for a long time yeah. in Brazil, didn't they? Yeah. And in fact, what's interesting about Brazil is that a lot of people are probably convinced that Brazil did nothing. I think a lot of Westerners are probably convinced that, you know, Brazil did nothing because, oh, you know, Bolsonaro, the denialist, was in power. And in fact, you know, because it's a federal system and when you, when you actually look at the data, yeah, right. I mean, the, you know, when, when you look at kind of the, I mean, the overall stringency of the measures, it's kind of in between Brazil. I mean, it's not yeah. like way at the bottom I mean, and at it, all. And it varies quite a lot, but also, you know, in, in very Brazilian fashion, it was a bit haphazard. Um, sometimes rules are applied really hard for no reason, and they're like the most random rules. Um, and then other ones are completely lax, and you're not really sure why that is. Um, they keep kept trying to impose lockdowns, at least the state level in Sao Paulo, and, you know, to less and less effect. So there was like 80% adhesion in the first one, and by the last one, there was like 30%. And kind of, it still continues, you know, the law is the law, but like things just kind of, you know, no one observes. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was... It was a weird kind of situation. It made me a little bit schizophrenic. As well. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it was Italy. It was like that too, in some respects. So I think you know, Italy and Brazil have quite a few things in common. Like, for example, mm. they never increased uh, and never applied serious limits on, for example, uh, public transport. And so even even at the height of lockdown, you would still, you know, wait. wait I mean, that, wait, that was that was true here, here actually. Curiously, you had to wear a mask even in the middle of a forest. You would still see buses that were crammed with yeah. people. Oh yeah, yeah, here as well. It was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and same in the underground and, and so on. You know, absolutely absurd. Um, I mean, that was true here. You know, the trains and buses carried on going, although people did obey. obey they weren't on them, but they carried on going right the way through, even the most, you know, the worst bits of it. But. Oh, here they were packed. They were packed. I mean, well, not not at, not not at the height of lockdown when you couldn't leave your house, but you know when they started relaxing measures a bit, but you still had to wear a mask even in the middle of the of a forest. Uh, you still had you know packed buses and packed uh, you know underground mm. trains. I mean, didn't didn't really make much sense at all. Yeah, yeah. I remember going hiking and not being allowed. The trails were closed. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to encounter anyone there. Um, but yeah, I can get on a crowded bus. That I can do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that was. Well, I mean, it has been on what I have heard from Brazilian friends yeah. is that um, the, the demographic was quite different in Brazil, wasn't it? Of COVID fatalities, younger people seem to have died in Brazil of COVID. Uh, yeah, is that, I put the Latin American death rates down to obesity because it's such a problem in, in Latin America. But I don't know if that's. Yeah. I think it, I think it's that it was a lot of underlying health issues, a lot related to uh, obesity and related issues like diabetes and so on. Um, so there was a lot of people, you know, talking like, wait, there's 40 something, 45 year old died and whatever. And it obviously that's anecdotal but it, you know sustained by evidence which made the the case a little bit difficult again like i'm you know kind of following stuff going on in the north and um yeah. not the north of the country the north of the world yeah. <laughs> and it, and sometimes the narratives don't exactly match up no um, i mean i, get that. I, I know that's the same was true in mexico uh yeah yeah, and I think that sustained a demand for lockdown. So you have this paradoxical situation in Brazil where there hasn't been a reckoning. I mean, there hasn't been a reckoning with lockdown anywhere, which is a real problem and why it's it's admirable that you've written this book uh, because I would have no desire whatsoever to look back. Um, but, you know, that... There's a, there's a, the, it's obvious what the reckoning should be in Britain, for example. Um, in Brazil, it's a little bit more complicated because there's this kind of social demand for lockdown or for the state to be responsible um, and a sense that the Brazilian state has um, had certain you know is um something that the, the brazilian state has achieved in terms of its very big success in vaccinating population for other you know pre-existing tropical diseases in a sense that wait the state went absent here where it should have been doing what it should do and i understand that but at the same time it's like but don't be demanding the lockdown that they did in um you know in the uk like that's the wrong way to to hold the government to account mm -hmm. so it's 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 tricky yeah yeah but that's the that's the only kind of response that people could conceive, you know, which is kind of weird. And yeah, people, I think that people depends. That proves your book, right? Lockdowns everywhere. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, I think. And but it's weird that people could conceive state action only in those terms, only yeah. in highly repressive yeah. authoritarian terms, and you know, that's a very good point. Hello, welcome to the after party. This is myself, Alex, Phil, and George uh, discussing what we've just heard. And I, in the interview, I had decided to focus um, primarily on the reasons for lockdown and why they became generalized and less on some of the downsides and less on why they were sustained for so long in many different jurisdictions. And I think the reason for that 
um, part is that there's so much to discuss. Um, we'd have to do an endless interview to cover it all. But also just because um, I think trying to nail down that question and to try to find a plausible answer for why um, there was such a consensus on the matter, I think is, is a very important one. Just to support that argument that I'm making, I think it it's, would, be, would have been worthwhile if there had been a greater variety of approaches to dealing with a pandemic amongst similar countries, purely for the matter of science and to try to understand what worked best and what didn't. Um, and, if, and in fact, the, 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 the amazing consensus across different countries for something which was relatively unprecedented, uh, certainly in, in our times, means that we never really got the chance to test out um, those possibilities. So I think if only for that reason, um, it would have been worthwhile if there hadn't been such an overwhelming consensus on what the appropriate measures were. But I think that's, I mean, in some ways, it's the most important part of the puzzle. And I'm still left unconvinced. Um, I mean, so I mentioned, you know, that I saw the book launch of the book. And I think it's worth stressing that this is something they came, Toby and Thomas, they came under pressure from at the book launch. So from the floor, they were pushed on this question of how do you account for the incredible uniformity of response. And it's still the piece of the puzzle, which I'm kind of least convinced by in terms of their accounts. And at the book launch, Toby made the case that, you know, I mean, part of the reason that um, African governments kind of uh, fell into line so quickly is just because they're so dependent economically um, on the World Health Organization and various kind of Western appendages and what have you. And so that's no surprise. But then, you know, it goes beyond that. I mean, Latin America and India, for instance, where there's... Um, you know, arguably in some cases of those, you know, at least less dependence, political and economic, and yet you still had the same kind of level of uniformity. And so they, you know, they see this kind of uniformity as nefarious, which it is, I think, but they, I think they overestimate the strength lying behind that uniformity. And it seems to me the kind of the fact that there was a lack of variety in terms of responses or the degree of uniformity that there was, that speaks to, it speaks more, I think, to habit than, um, you know, habit and history more than conspiracy. And I'm not suggesting they said it was a conspiracy, but they see it as kind of, um, you know, institutionalized kind of layered cooperation and planning that was effectively rolled out. And it seems to me it was more, you know, it's kind of, it's the habits of transnational and supranational coordination. Yeah inherited from an era of which is was still you know still kind of unipolar um in many of its kind of policies and procedures and institutional practices in terms of its elite coordination and also in a very basic level that you just have you know so many states that are networked into these supranational kind of constellations and therefore without you know they're not meaningfully kind of responsive to popular pressure and so unsurprisingly, they're not configured to reflect kind of the different, um, you know, different kind of social and demographic constituencies. And so unsurprisingly, when they respond to something which is like a global shock like this, they respond in very similar ways. Um, and so that, I think, is um, I would explain it more in terms of the lack of um, kind of democratic decay throughout the world and the supranational integration of states more than like a single center that's kind of controlling and disseminating, which is more of the kind of the line that Toby and Thomas took. So I'd read it more as weakness mm -hmm. than strength, essentially. That yeah. would be my um, yeah. that would be my line on it. No, I think this is an <clears throat> absolutely crucial point. I mean, as I was listening to it, I was thinking you can kind of have a consensus in two ways, an active or a passive one. And I think they, you know, Thomas talked about central coordination and the confluence of interests. And this isn't completely like, um irrelevant but i think you know the point that you're making phil that there is it's more of the passive consensus maybe or more accurately it's intergovernmentalism is the the key thing here because it's this is how like states respond to key problems they they will look at what other states are doing they will like what's the slide deck that that bill gates has circulated what does this say it's a it is a sign of the weakness of the you know, the states and their responses, not the strength of the central coordination. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that's why I think conspiracy is obviously a very loaded term and, and they don't um, say that it's a conspiratorial like approach um, or, or this is how things happen. But, you know, there it, it can appear this way 
not that their argument, but the, the reality can appear this way because in reality, you don't need a particularly coordinated um, and strong agent in order to to kind of have a consensual approach to key problems like this because mm. of the very weakness of the states. And I think this is an important point because it suggests to me that like this is going to happen again. It's not about the specific interests of the pharmaceuticals or whoever. It's not about those interests and how they were sort of um, furthered or not, but they definitely were during COVID. It's just that there's a weakness of states' responses. There's an, an uh, like a weakness of of states to mobilize the citizenry to do anything positive in response to things like this. So that's my kind of you know I'm agreeing with you Phil see, basically. I'm so on the latter part of what you said, George. So I'm, and this is again something which is um, I can't claim credit for because it came up at the book launch. But I wonder, you know, so one thing in which you don't have coordination is over um, kind of global coordination is over Ukraine, because in in Africa and also in with India, you know, they've broken from the Western-led consensus in a way that they didn't over COVID, and so. I suppose, you know, the question that comes from that is whether or not, you know, the um, the question of Ukraine is a much more kind of immediate question of geopolitical rivalry. And so you see that kind of emergence of a multipolar or at least a non-unipolar world is in, you know, it gives kind of more space. The nature of the contest in Ukraine gives more space for um, non-aligned or neutralist kind of responses. Um as opposed to the you know what happened with um what happened with uh, with covid and it's also interesting if you remember you know i'm sure people saw this listeners saw this in responses to the end of zero covid in china you know they started hail the same people the kind of people who were protesting the zero covid regime in china who were kind of calumnied and slandered in the West as like you know super spreaders and nazis and you know vax deniers and whatnot among you know in CNN and the BBC were cast as freedom fighters against communist tyranny when it happened in China so i wonder if what i'm saying is i guess i wonder if the political fractures now are at the geopolitical level mean that it would be much more difficult to coordinate a um a kind of a globalist response as you saw with lockdown given the fact that there is more political capital to be made of kind of um uh flagging up differences rather than similarities of between responses. So I think that competition, geopolitical competition, might stop it in future. So I think that's a very important observation, Phil, about the way that um, you know various countries um, didn't follow the the kind of Western line on on um, Ukraine in the way that they did over uh, COVID. But I, I mean, I think isn't that puzzle such as it is not easily resolved by the fact that it was China which initially did a lockdown. Okay, it didn't sustain a lockdown until much later on. Um, but there wasn't, you know, the other the other major um, player in global affairs uh, didn't do what didn't kind of pursue a different line to the West. In fact, the West was inspired by China and perhaps patted itself on the back by saying oh we're not being so authoritarian as china we're but we're 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 doing what they're doing but you know in a, in our in a more liberal fashion um even if there was no but substantive kind of but i don't think there. they did that i think i mean there might but this is what i'm saying i think there might be political gain to differentiate yourself from china in you know kind of as um, being supposedly more free right in future whereas there didn't seem yeah. to be any of that you know like as you're saying if anything um, if anything, there seemed to be envy of China's kind of authority, just the sheer kind of state capacity of China to sustain lockdown um, in these enormous kind of urban conurbations in a way that seemed to be beyond this um, capacity of Western states. And I'm just not sure that will work out in the same way in future. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying for sure. I'm just saying, you know, I think it's likely that the kind of, you know, that era of peak globalism that you kind of saw that was the that was COVID was like an afterhang or lockdown was an afterhang of that. And perhaps we won't see it again because of geopolitical changes. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I I, I remember making the point about tech, it being a kind of last gasp of technocracy, um, but it might have also been a last gasp of, of kind of globalism and, and global coordination. Um, one important aspect here, I think, is also just risk aversion, that, the, that if there's a sort of follow the leader effect, you're safer yeah. being in the crowd and especially weaker smaller states might just be like well, well no, it's not, not, not worth in, 
not in this case you're not safer in the crowd in in reference to covid but no, i know what no, you were saying no. um also oh, you admit that actually covid exists and you might get infected well that's that's a start at least well i'm i reserve the right to be <laughs> as crankish as i as i want on these questions but sorry no, but, i did interrupt you very rudely yeah yeah no, no no and then i interrupted back anyway so uh there's obviously you know kind of safety in crowds and standing out um which is what makes the, the swedish case kind of all the more remarkable but what's interesting is that that risk aversion there obviously breeds a certain um need to cover your ass if you feel that um things aren't quite working out as they should have done that you're still having uh, a certain number of deaths for example despite doing these lockdowns that you don't aren't able to flatten the curve and then you have to constantly shift the goalposts the media get involved of course and and the role of the media i think is something that we should definitely touch on in terms of perpetuating the lockdown perpetuating the the sense of panic and fear something that uh, certainly on the left was a standard discussion point with regard to the war on terror um which seems yeah, to have been indeed. rather forgotten uh, over covid and just one other other point to bring in this issue of, uh, or to extend this question of risk aversion precaution. What's interesting is that, yes, there was this risk aversion of like, well, Italy started to do these lockdowns. We're doing lockdowns. Okay, we're all doing lockdown. Okay, this is what we're doing now. But it's why did the precautionary principle only run one way? It only ran towards lockdown, whereas a precautionary approach might have just as well prescribed to be a little bit more light touch, to not take such extreme measures and to do something like, well, let's try to keep the show on the road as much as possible not change things too much because who knows what the consequences of that will be yeah i mean i think the so the element though also that's part of that again is that question of you know if you have if you lack democratic legitimacy which it's fair to say i think you know many governing elites do and many states do at the moment um then you're going to be much more susceptible i think to these kinds of um, responses at the global level, particularly if you're very kind of globally networked as you would be coming out of the era of unipolar globalization. And so you don't have the confidence that you can kind of perhaps experiment, that you can maybe um, break with the pack, you know, like um, because you can rely on the population trusting the decisions of leaders with a democratic or a popular mandate. Um, and so all of that seems to me to factor into it as well. Um one element, I think, which I feel like I should also say, which I think is kind of um, perhaps uh, slightly more positive than and didn't really come across in the discussion, um, is that there was an element, I think, I mean, I know we've touched upon this before, but there was an element of good, citizen, good citizenship as well. So for mm -hmm. all the kind of, you know, the misery of uh, lockdown and so much, so many things about it that were just uh, dispiriting, you know, like the snitch line that was overwhelmed notoriously here in the UK, people snitching on their neighbors, even the cops had to tell people to stop bringing up the snitch line. Um, you know, despite that, I think there was like, there was a huge part of the rallying effect wasn't, um, you know, it was people wishing to be good citizens and seeking, you know, after kind of decades of kind of um, consumerist, a consumerist kind of outlook uh, endorsed, you know, which has official endorsement by the state um, and uh, kind of neoliberal passivity, there was like, I think, uh, an aspiration for um, a collective project. And you saw this in yeah. all the kind of volunteering and kind of spontaneous effects that occurred at the time. And which tellingly, at least in the UK, and I'm sure it's similar elsewhere, governments were unable to kind of meaningfully channel or do anything with. And so it's not, I guess what I'm saying is it's not just, um, you know, it's not just kind of a fusion of uh, state and corporate power manipulating people, but also that you saw the neoliberal state kind of uh, receiving this infusion of, dem of kind of popular legitimacy because people rallied. You know, people did support the NHS. People did actually stay home and not go to the NHS as they were encouraged to do so by the state. People helped out their neighbors initially by providing, you know, those who were shielding with food from groceries and whatnot. So well, and, anyway. and that also and that's also why um, those who are asking questions are not going along with it or even just um, sticking two fingers up at the at, at the kind of COVID mandates were um, treated so viciously because it's a little bit like being yeah. a wrecker, right? That, you know, this new collective project. Has yeah, been there was. There was. Finally, we're getting meaning yeah. from that. I mean, as you say, there's there's something very positive to tease out about that. I mean, we actually, I think, wrote this in the afterward to the Italian edition of our book uh, precisely about the the kind of sense of social purpose that was provided by COVID, which shouldn't be just, um, uh, you know, um, washed away or, or neglected um, as, uh, or, you know, dismissed as a sort of um, 
authoritarian personality or something like that. Yeah. No, and the other... what, what happened as a consequence? I mean, this was the, the real disconnect, wasn't it, between, I think, at least in this country, everybody volunteering, <clears throat> you know, to administer vaccines or to just, you know, do, do something. And what was the, you know, there was no political project that corresponded to that. It was a, you know, stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS. That that was, at least in this country, yeah. The kind of the 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 most social or the most political thing that you could do, yeah. So it yeah. was. I mean, that disconnect is something worth sort of remembering, because um, it it seems like a long time ago now, but uh, it's really not that long, is it? Only three years. And I think, yeah, and I think also like um, what you say, Alex, is uh, though there is, you know, people have the desire to move on. It's not something we should. Um, it's not something we should. Uh, allow really because it's important that there is accountability for it and i think a lot of the reason people do want to kind of move on is not only because it's um you know such an uncomfortable and difficult period to talk about but also because um they don't i think a lot of people they don't want to reflect on how complicit they were in um in this totally extraordinary extraordinary period yeah so two more points i think we should discuss to round this out firstly an idea which um, I think comes through uh, and is suggested in Toby and Thomas's book, which is this idea that we can live on thin air, effectively that we could live off the internet. And of course, there are powerful interests, um, not necessarily pushing that, but who would benefit from a new configuration of society, a new configuration of production where it's all done um, remotely via the internet and can see how the way that Zoom stocks boomed and people were ordering stuff at home and so on. But I, in a more serious um way, I think there's a certain kind of ideological configuration there, a kind of, um, of this idea of living on thin air, a kind of po- a retreat from production, a, a consumerist mentality, however you want to call it, um, which led to the implementation of lockdowns and the idea that they could be um, perpetuated. And I think the, the way that that is uh, shown to be the case is by is the contrast with, um, you know, poor societies where production is uh, much more immediate, which is, I think, a point I made in, in the interview. Um, whereas in the West, as we've discussed many times in, in various different um, cases in reference actually to a universal basic income, for example, um, at, or various post-work arguments in the discussion we had with Alex Gurevich a little while ago, that there's this uh, conceit that production somehow happens automatically. And so the left-wing argument that, oh, the people who are against lockdowns are just against it because they want to you know, preserve their profits and they're just uh, narrowly economically interested. While that is true, it ignores the fact that production isn't something that just somehow you know belongs to the capitalist, but is an important part in the reproduction of our society and, and, and the, the things we need to live on. And that, I think, gets forgotten. And that's why it was felt that lockdown could just con- kind of continue for two years with um, little consequence. Well, it's a great, I mean, living on thin air, it's a great throwback line to Charles Ledbetter, who, for listeners who don't know, he was yeah. one of these very creepy um, Blairite gurus. He wrote a book called Living on Thin Air back in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, um, they called The Living on Thin Air, subtitled The New Economy. And in it, he said, knowledge is our most precious resource. We should organize society to maximize its creation and use. So, I mean, very much the yeah, kind nice of it was the, back to that. I couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was the vision of the, you know, one of the early kind of statements or visions of the knowledge economy that you could kind of reorganize society and economy around knowledge workers, everyone becoming white collar and educated and mobile and cosmopolitan. And, you know, there's nothing to do which is menial or, um, you know, kind of blue collar or dirty or industrial or manufacturing. All of that somehow happens magically. So I think, you know, I mean, there is like, I mean, it was like a victory for knowledge workers um, in the um, reorganization of office life, I think, in the fact that they were, their interests were prioritized at the expense of um, of kind of uh, blue collar working class people. So it was like their last great hurrah, perhaps, of the knowledge of the knowledge, uh, the knowledge economy, and the mm. Charles Ledbetter vision. Mm, I'm not quite sure it was the last great hurrah. I mean, because the, you know, not to not to kind of reduce it all down to to this, but I 
I think to a certain extent, some of the people who were most vocal about lockdown and most supportive, at least in Western contexts, were, let's call people from liberal professions, um, <laughs> won't use uh, any other way of talking about them. And this is, you know, these are people who do come into contact with the basic units of capitalism, the commodity only in circulation, not directly in production. So there is an extent to which the their social position encourages the perception that we can live on thin air. So I think there is a kind of you don't want to kind of reduce it all down to that, but there is a certainly a you know a material reality that people who don't produce things um, can shout about lockdowns louder because it corresponds to the way that they actually do live their lives. They come closer to living on thin air than um, than anyone else, perhaps. Yeah. So just to finish off, um, almost all of restrictions have been drawn in some states. All restrictions have been withdrawn, and a lot of the anti-lockdown arguments. Um, and not just anti-lockdown, but anti-COVID consensus arguments, let's put it that way, during the pandemic, presumed a sort of slippery slope or that a lot of these measures would be maintained and that it would be, you know, a final goodbye to freedom. That obviously hasn't proved to be the case. So what is the actual legacy of these COVID measures, given that most of the worst measures have certainly been withdrawn? All sorts of dangerous precedents. I mean, that's on the negative side. I mean, I think there is one enormous positive, which is the fact that the Chinese Communist Party retreated. You know, it seems to be Mm -hmm. uh, retreated from a display of people power. And I'm sure, you know, there's tremendous variation in terms of um, different urban centers and town and country and what have you in China. But nonetheless, it seems to me very politically important that there was um, a popular... Um, something like a popular uprising or at least a um, a blow struck against the tyranny of the Communist Party state in China. And that is, you know, the long-term consequences of that, I think, will be important and worth kind of watching. Um, here, I think the, uh, you know, in the West, um, paradoxically, perhaps, given that we don't live under, CC, under the CCP, um, most of the consequences seem to me to be um, extraordinarily negative. Not only in the sense there's the collapse of like trust in um, vaccination as a whole, due to the way they handled vaccination, the medical profession, science, mm-hmm. big pharma, you know, all of these things, all of these kinds of all of our social divisions seem to be, you know, amplified. And that's to say nothing of the precedence of the uh, confiscation of civil liberties and restriction on movement, which I think you're seeing in efforts to control movement for um, environmental ends. And we've touched upon this separately in uh, the discussion that um, is close to me at the moment, which is 15-minute city, so-called, the new kind of control of movement within cities that's being pioneered in certain UK municipalities. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult not to... <clears throat> not to sort of see this as a, a bit of a turning point or the realization of of various trends and the phrase which I keep coming back to is one used by Lee Jones, the political scientist and, and guest of this podcast on a number of occasions, authoritarianism without authority, that we have like this, it was a very authoritarian moment as as Thomas puts it, that, you know, authoritarian, ter- authoritarian turn. Um, you know, Toby was talking about what question of why do people accept this? And suddenly this idea of surveillance was a good thing. You know, all of these Rubicons have been crossed if that's, if there are more than one Rubicon, but whatever. Anyway, so what was my actual point here? The idea is that, yeah, these, this is the ground laid for future restrictions on civil liberties for things like, um, the, the eating bugs, living in pod life. Um, and it's, it's a authoritarianism which doesn't have the political authority of a, you know, a consolidated group at its at its core. So it's it, we saw, um, at least in the British case, Boris Johnson smirking as he was kind of delivering the the news of lockdown. I think we're going to sort of see this kind of paradoxical combination in the future when we have, um, you know, more authoritarian moves without the kind of uh, central. Um, set of identifiable authoritarians uh, doing it so that would be my kind of negative i don't i'm trying to think of something positive um but that's that's about it really so yeah i I mean i think we should consider of course the fact that there will be another pandemic um most likely and predictions that as humanity makes further incursions into especially tropical forests where there's particularly bats who are often uh, immune to these diseases but are what are you talking about alex Uh, 
This is actually one of the is, consequences the, of the pandemic. Is that this is that's, that's WEF talking points? No, this is this is this is this is true. Um, that that um, bats are, carry a lot of coronaviruses and often can, um, you know, transfer over to, to other. I can't species believe you're blaming humans. bats for this. Um, really <laughs> so anyway, the, the point being is that is that we've had several um pandemics and of course you know the the boundaries of what exactly is a pandemic and not um you know kind of oh, look, i don't buy this no look but, and, now hang on but, but you it, had like no but you had like mirrors right i mean that was like something connected to the hajj right so i mean i think you know or you could have i don't know a virus coming out of say chinese lunar new year celebrations because literally millions of people move no but I that mean, doesn't, the idea but that doesn't that, that's not where they come out of that's where that's where they no, spread they, and, no but it no, but they come like it's not coming from bats in Saudi Arabia, right? Yes, no, but it, my point well, is not in Saudi. The point, no, the point is that they they come very often from you know their tropical diseases, which were restricted to certain species of animals, particularly bats, um, which then spread uh, to other species and then on to humans. This is I don't think it's unreasonable or scaremongering or whatever, just to say that this is. So, uh, this I'm is not saying it's scare which is real and which is which is in- increasing. So there's no reason to assume that we won't the face big... future pandemics. No, I'm not saying we won't face future pandemics. I'm saying that kind of making it into um, kind of assuming that the that the case for it would become from human encroachment on nature, and it's you know with the implicit the implicit kind of implication that it's some punishment for our who said um, that? No, but you're you're. I'm not you're saying. I'm not saying you're mouth. saying it. I'm saying that if there is, you know, look, the biggest last pandemic was at the end of the First World War. And then you had a few kind of, you know, a few kind of um, a few things occasionally like the Hong Kong flu and whatnot in the intervening period. So it comes around like, what, 50 to 100 years, you know, so I'm not I don't think that we need to kind of live in terror of the next kind of pandemic happening in short order. And I'm just saying it could as likely come from any, you know, any other kind of scenario. It doesn't have to be something which is... Which animal? Which animal are you... Anyway, look, we, 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 I don't think it's worth... I, I have a serious point. We, though, but let me, let me well. finish the point. Let me finish the so point. Did I. Because Let me finish the point. Because the point is not that we have the... We don't have the scientific knowledge to assess uh, and to discuss these properly. Um, I'm just going on um, fairly well-established consensus. And I think that's important. Um um, the, the yeah, point so being, am I. The, the point, anyway, the point being that um, in a future pandemic, what will the response be conditioned by, as you know, as, as it will be by the reactions to this one? And I think that's kind of interesting. I don't know whether people would accept another lockdown and that same sort of approach. Um, so it, it does raise the question of how, you know, if we're trying to be politically serious in trying to hold those who are responsible and account for the actions in the past, also that that should inform uh, our understanding of what should happen in the future. I think just a, one quick point that the short one shortcoming of Toby and Thomas's book, which it, in no way uh, detracts from the criticisms they make, is that they don't actually um, suggest an alternative model of, of pandemic management, even if it's just specifically for the COVID one, other than to say, you know, they should have followed their uh, original plans that were in place in 2019. Well, what's wrong um, with that? Well, uh, I don't know because I mean, obviously why, was... so maybe they should have. Why not? It's I, perfectly I, reasonable I, to say the World Health Organization should have followed the guidelines that it drew up for pandemics. Why not? Well, I think that's an awfully conservative um, approach to just default to um, what the WHO was was prescribing, given the context of you know withered uh, withered health services. Um, to so to simply def- depend on you know and kind of fall back on that, I think is is insufficient. I I would say. That so your question is what what how will policymakers or the public react for the next pandemic? I think the it is significant that there was all this planning, all of these kind of scenarios, all these games like game theory approaches all mapped out, um, and you know there were different states with different gradings of levels of uh, pandemic preparedness, and it all went out the window really really quickly, um, you know, and maybe that was for good reason maybe not but the i think it just shows the strength uh, to return to my point about intergovernmentalism it just shows the withering of the, the state and the you know this is the way that policymakers will will respond they will look <clears throat> transnationally rather than um to domestic populations for legitimacy and i think that means that it's pretty kind of um we're pretty likely to get similar sort of responses i mean we, we don't know what exactly the next pandemic is going to look like but my hypothesis would be that the political conditions are still very much in play for a similar sort of um, response, which is one with 
authoritarianism without authority, no attempt to kind of politically mobilize people into into doing things. People are volunteering to do vaccines or whatever the corresponding thing would be in the next pandemic. And it's like, no, just isolate yourself, demobilize politically, um, because that worked very well. We forget that in 20, early 2020, there was still the threat of populism. This is restoration politics, if you want to put it that way. It, it was uh, the crushing of, of any kind of re remaining um, populist energies, or well, not crushing, that's wrong, but decharging, de de if that's the word. Um, so yeah, that would be my, yeah, that might not be specific enough to be of any use or interest, but that's that's my take. Okay, maybe we should leave that there, and uh, we'll look forward to your responses to this episode, and we will discuss them at the next uh, Alpha Bonus Bonus. But that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.